Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Some of the most beautiful buildings all over the world have a religious orientation. Temples, a lot of temples, you know, these centers of devotion and piety, they they gather people both for the spectacle as well as the spirituality. I'm thinking about uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome or the, the Duomo in Florence or the, the pyramids, which are like tombs and temples at the same time, or the Temple of Heaven in Beijing, or the temples that are on the banks of the Ganges River. Uh, These temples represent, in some way, human beings' capacity to grapple with things that are infinite, things that are beyond their context. Uh, It's a way of of touching the divine. We may say that some of those ways are flawed, but I think that's the attempt, at least, to grapple with what's beyond us. Uh, And uh, there's a particular building that's actually grown on me. I didn't like it at first because I thought it was tacky, but then I learned I'm dumb. Sometimes that happens, right, where you don't like something because you're not sophisticated enough to like it. Uh, but there's this proto-cathedral in Barcelona called the Proto-Cathedral of the Holy Family, and it's not finished yet. It's like taken 100 years, and they're still not done with it, but that's pretty typical where cathedrals are concerned. But it was designed by this very devout man named Gaudi, He was a genius, an architectural and artistic genius. And he was, um, he, his approach to the construction of a cathedral was very different than other people's. He wanted to make it look alive. He wanted the whole kind of cathedral milieu to be one of organic growth. And so the pillars in the cathedral look like trees. The ceiling of the cathedral looks like a canopy of, of leaves. There are all sorts of fantastical figures that look like they're in motion, even though they've been carved. They look like they're in motion. And so the whole cathedral looks, to quote Gaudi, like it's breathing, like it's really alive. And you can look it up online. I would recommend it. It's quite something to behold. But that was his goal, to artistically communicate the whole concept of a living temple, a living temple for God. And I think Paul would have really liked Gaudi's idea. I do. I think the Apostle Paul uh, envisioned a a new way of understanding sacred space or a new temple, an organic temple or a nomadic cathedral that wouldn't be stuck but would uh, would be able to travel and would be able to meet people and minister to people wherever it went. Well, the context for our passage tonight from Ephesians chapter 2 is important. Paul, in the latter portion of chapter 2 of this epistle, talks a lot about the connection that Jews and Gentiles can have together in Christ, that because of what Jesus has done and because of its universal implications, because he wasn't just the Lamb of God who took away the sins of Israel, but the Lamb that took away the sins of the world, he was able to reunite the clans, so to speak, to use brave heart imagery. He was able to reunite Jews and Gentiles under the same blood-stained banner and create out of those two groups one new man, says St. Paul, or a new humanity. 
So that's our context, but I'd like to focus tonight on verses 19 through 22, in which Paul details his blueprints for a new temple, a new kind of sacred space. And I really would love for you to uh, take the bulletin up and let's read the passage together and work through this material. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Now there's infinite value in that passage, but I want to just speak about two things tonight and then draw some conclusions. I want to speak about the old temple and then the new temple, and then I'll apply it to us. But we have to go back in time. We have to take a time machine, you know, back to the days of Moses to really understand how profound and wild Paul is being in this chapter. You know, Judaism was a religion that centered around a single shrine, and and that was the, the, the temple. The temple was a place that in which people would gather uh, to engage in a little mediation with God. They knew that if they were to offer a, a sacrificial animal, there was something about that gift and the blood that was spilt that could in some way communicate the idea of of a substitutionary act where people could be saved because some other entity paid the penalty for sin. And that was offered to God by a priest within this structure that they knew as the temple. And, uh, and so the temple in some ways was like a house of blood, but it was a, really a house of atonement, a way for people to come back to God uh, through the vehicle of sacrifice and to come back safely. Um, but what you may not know is before the temple was made of very pretty stones, it was made of canvas. It didn't start off very fancy. Because when the Israelites were leaving Egypt in the Exodus, God told the people to construct a temple-like building, but to make it out of canvas so that they could travel with it. It was actually for a long time called the tabernacle. So it was like this big tent that this nomadic tribe could take with them. They could set it up, tear it down, and then move with it. Uh, And this, this form of a temple... This movable canvas temple was extremely important symbolically because of this withness principle in the Old Testament. You may know that God's promise to the Jewish forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then their descendants was, I will be with you no matter what. I will be with you. I'm not going anywhere. I keep my promises. I don't abandon my children in a ditch. I stay with you. And the tabernacle was a visual reminder of the withness of Yahweh amongst his people. It was the place of connection. It was the portal to heaven. It was a way where the infinite, timeless God, who is in all places at all times, would locally manifest himself to this particular group of people. And so no matter where Israel went, Yahweh went too. More than that, it communicated the whole notion of God's omnipresence, because unlike the gods of the other nations, Yahweh was not a territorialist God who only dwelt in one place, one chunk of geography, one bit of terrain. Instead, he was the Lord over all places, 
in all times. And this movable temple communicated those ideas. Well, that lasted quite a while, quite a while, up until David, King David, was in his waning years. When he would look outside of his McMansion, right? He had this very impressive house with like a with a slate roof and eight bathrooms and a sauna and uh, and a McDonald's in the in the kitchen and um, and so, but he was feeling guilty about it, right? He had misplaced guilt, but he felt guilty that when he looked outside of his palace, he saw God's house, which was canvas, and he said, "Why is it that I get to?" live in the midst of gold and marble, and God lives in a Coleman tent outside in the yard. So he said, I'm going to make it all better. So he did this massive capital campaign, which was extremely successful, raised the billions of dollars. And then he, uh, he, he decided to ask God about it. Right, but he he didn't actually ask God. He just told God what he was going to do. He said, "I, you know, I I feel bad that I'm I'm living in a pretty house and you have a dump, and so I'm going to make you a really gorgeous house." I mean, I see my competitors all around me. I see what the other nations do for their little tin gods, and they have impressive structures. You need the best structure. I'm going to make it great again. Anyway, (laughs) that was his vision. That was the Davidic vision. Well, anyway, God has a very interesting response to David, which is, no, thank you. I'm really not interested, not at all. Uh, And then he says something to David. I know you want to build a house for me, but my goal is to build a house for you. Yeah, I'm going to create out of you a dynasty that will never die. And from you will come the Messiah. Massive pledge to David. But but David was so insistent about building this house. So anyway, he dies. Solomon, his son, becomes king. And Solomon takes the baton from David and runs with it and, and says, how about I use all of the money that we raised and I employ a little slave labor uh, to construct a temple for God, which is, of course, what he does. And so under Solomon, tabernacle becomes temple, canvas becomes concrete, motion becomes marble, instant transformation. And now this movable nomadic temple is locked in one place at one time, just like all the other nation's temples. By the way, and incidentally, if you're interested, there is a parallelism that that is happening within Jewish history regarding two issues. One is the monarchy and one is the temple. These were not God's ideas. These were people's ideas, and God accommodated to them that they were not part of the original design either the monarchy or the temple. Another issue for another day. Anyway, this temple, David's temple, Solomon's temple, stands for quite a while. But then in 538 BC, the Babylonians invade and burn it down, along with most of the country. They take their captives back to Babylon. After a 100 or so years, they start letting people return to their homeland. And 150 years after the temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt It was rebuilt by, let's say, non-engineers who didn't do a great job. They did the best they could with the materials that they had, but it was pretty lackluster. And after a few hundred years, people got sick of looking at it. And then there came a hero, a hero named Herod the Great, who decided, you know, I've killed enough siblings today. (laughs) And I've designed enough pagan temples Hmm, but there's a way to win over my Jewish crowd that seems to always want to kill me. And how about I build the best temple ever? So 
They got rid of that lackluster temple that was built after the exile, and Herod built something gorgeous, gorgeous. It wasn't even finished by Jesus' day, but it was extremely, um, it was extremely impressive. And in fact, the rabbis of Jesus' day called the temple the glory of Yahweh. Like if you want to see the glow, right? If you want to see the energy, the Shekinah, just see the temple and you've seen God. You've seen God's glory, which is quite something to say considering who, um, who built it. But, okay, so this is the backdrop and enter Jesus Christ. Enter Jesus, who has a very different perspective regarding the temple, a perspective that unsurprisingly mirrors God's own earlier perspective when God argued with David. So, uh, and we, we, we know that Jesus preferred the concept of a, of a temple in motion, even a temple that could be personified in a human. And so it's not surprising that this language is littered throughout the Gospels, but especially in John's Gospel. So in John chapter 1, you may remember the big prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came to dwell among us. Well, uh, in the original language, it isn't so much that the Word just came to dwell among us, but the Word came to tent himself among us or be tabernacled among us. Our old temple language, where now um, the author wants us to know that Jesus understood himself to be the portal to heaven. Jesus understood himself, his own body, to be in some ways a temple where people could reconnect with God through sacrifice and to do so safely. That conception uh, is mirrored in the second chapter of John's gospel after the temple judgment where Jesus ruffled some feathers in the inner courts. And then he tells his uh, interlocutors this very thing. He says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they all thought that he was talking about Herod the Great's temple. But no, the text says he was talking about the temple of his body. He began to understand that it was his veins, his bones, his emotions, his feelings, his psychology, his very form that would become a temple for people. And then in John chapter 4, he actually predicts in some ways the the kind of unnecessary quality of the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking to the woman at the well, and she has a notoriously complicated sex life, um, and he and, and she keeps trying to change the subject because she's uncomfortable, and she makes it about theology when it was really much like her issues were more pressing than that. But she tries to derail Jesus, saying, you Jews, you think we all need to worship with you in the temple in Jerusalem, and we Samaritans have our own place to worship. And Jesus helps her to chill out by saying, look, there is coming a day and the day is now here when it's not going to be about mountains. The true worshipers will worship the father. You remember it in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be about the location anymore. It's about the heart. And so Jesus is starting to deconstruct the whole conception of a temple. Anyway, that's the backdrop for the old temple. Enter the new temple that Paul is now writing about in verse 19. So let's read it again with that backdrop in mind. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so Paul is picking up these ideas that were implicit in the ministry of Jesus and sometimes explicit in the ministry of Jesus, and he is pushing them further. 
You see what he's doing? He's saying that the temple is, is neither canvas nor concrete. The real temple is made of limbs and hands and blood and, and flesh and nervous systems and ideas and, and emotions and psychology. It's all of that. All of those people, all, the, all of them together become this new temple. Notice it's no less physical than the old temple, but it's a different kind of physicality. It's made of grander stuff because marble does not reflect the image of God. You do. And so he is coagulating a group of people that will function as this new portal, as this place in which God's spirit is more evident. Now, um, Paul, notice in this passage, writes a lot about this new temple's foundation. And the foundation is not Ethiopian marble. The foundation is made of heroic, bold, bleeding individuals. They are called the apostles, the prophets, and the Lord Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. So let's just talk about these groups. He says that, um, that this temple is built on the foundation of the apostles. Who are the apostles? Well, these are the movers and shakers who came after Christ. Yes, they were taught by Christ. They were witnesses of his miracles, witnesses of his resurrection. But then they were commissioned to go forth, not just into Israel, but to all the world and confess that somebody came to suffer, somebody came to rise again, that this person, this Jesus was the one who redeems and rescues and salvages the human race. That was their message, right? And it's incredibly important to see the apostles as part of the foundation of this movement. I mocked this idea a few weeks ago. I will mock it to this day, uh, which is, you know, when I was, when I was in, at Eastern University, there was this massive push to focus uh, in a particular way within scripture that I think is actually not scriptural, which is focus on the words in red. That is, because in the old King James Bible, Jesus' words were in red. Those are the words we were told that really mattered. Everything else was secondary, including Paul. And the reason that people said that is because Paul sometimes writes things they don't like. So they wanted Paul to be secondary, though I'm not sure how closely they read Jesus, because I'm sure he said things that they didn't like either, but nevertheless. Um, but the problem with that perspective is that it isn't biblical because all scripture is God breathed, including what um, Peter, Paul and other apostles had written. Uh, and so we at this church take those words just as seriously as the words of Jesus, because they are part of our foundation. They're part of our foundation. What these people contributed to the core of faith is absolutely irreplaceable. And so that's why after we read from Peter, read from Paul, read from St. John, we say the word of the Lord, because God has revealed God's own self through these people. They're part of our foundation. But it's not just the people that came after Christ and were sent out by Christ. It's people that preceded Christ. He talks about the prophets, not just the apostles, but the prophets. These are the before Christ people, the Old Testament sages, the wise men, the predictors of the Christ who understood that the human race was such a train wreck that the only way to salvage it was if God intervened and would do so personally that God would be the uh, the son of man who would come into the world to save people he would be the good shepherd who would lay down his life he would instigate a new covenant that would not be like the old covenant he would become the suffering servant who would lay down his life for criminals and would redeem the world the prophets gave us those ideas the prophets spoke those things into being the prophets gave us the backdrop that made sense of Jesus Christ and what he did. 
And so what this is saying is that the foundation of our faith is old and new. It's Old Testament prophets, New Testament, the apostles. And all of those foundation stones are linked to and inextricably connected to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone, meaning he is the most important part of the structure that gives the rest of the structure integrity, including the other bits of the foundation. Now, cornerstone is a very rich and loaded Old Testament word. And in fact, we confess something about this cornerstone every Palm Sunday when we march forward with our palms, we say together a psalm. That psalm is Psalm 118. It's known as a messianic psalm because it looks forward to a time in which God instigates a new justice in the world uh, through an anointed one. And in the middle of this psalm, which is zesty and, and effervescent and joyful, there's a downer. There's a downer smack in the middle of it. And it says this, the stone, some of you know this, the stone that the remember it, builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then it continues, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So in the middle of this happy psalm, it says, the one that is coming to you will be absolutely abused, maligned, critiqued, and killed by, the, by those who are in charge. And yet, He's the one, the rejected one, is the one who was chosen by God. And that choice is God's doing, not our election, God's election, God's choice. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the background that Paul knows about. Uh, and other New Testament authors testified of the same thing. Um, and, and so what he's saying is that the most important piece of the masonry of this new temple is the rejected son of man. It must not be lost on us that the founder of our movement was a man of pain. Like, we can't lose that. Because we all want to follow success stories. Don't you want your mentors to be winners? Don't you yourself want to be well-regarded? Win little awards and have people say nice things about you at cocktail parties? But our movement is founded upon somebody that the world thought was, a, was an absolute loser. But that is our religion founded upon the cornerstone who was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious in his sight. And so this is what he's saying, that Jesus Christ, the rejected one, is the cornerstone, the most important stone of the building. The foundation is held together by him. And it's a foundation laid by the prophets and the apostles. And on top of all that is us. Now, the us that Paul is talking about here is very clearly Jews and Gentiles, those who were far off, those who were near, all brought together as constituent parts of this new temple, bricks that rely upon other bricks, utterly connected. Um, if you were to take one of those groups away, the whole thing would collapse. But here we are, all built together. Now, I want you to consider what a radical idea this is. I said this last week. It's still true this week. Nobody had this idea but Paul. No one believed this but Paul. The idea that these two groups could share something that was so tethering that they could never be separated, that they were all built together in a, in, a, in a spiritual household. This is how radical it is. Archaeologists in the 1950s discovered what they called um, a warning stone in the old temple grounds. They just dug it up, found it. And the warning stone was placed on the outside of the inner court. The inner court was where all the Jewish men and women could go. 
And outside, uh, outside of that wall was a place for the Gentiles called, unsurprisingly, the court of the Gentiles. But this warning stone placed on the inner court wall said this, Gentiles may not enter on pain of death. So, you know, it sends a clear message. You are not welcome here. And so when Paul, using temple language, says, oh, no, everybody's welcome here. Everybody's welcome here. It doesn't matter about your DNA, and it doesn't matter who your dad was or what your mother did. Everybody's welcome in this temple. That's introducing a new idea into the world that everybody can re be reunited with God, that he's not selfish in his redemption, but lavish, lavish to a questionable degree. But that's what St. Paul is saying. Um, and so because of Christ and his universal appeal and his outstretched arms, we have to think about the Christian constituency differently. So all of these people, Jews and Gentiles, are built upon this cornerstone and the foundation of apostles and prophets. So I found this story yesterday that I think illustrates the point. You may know this, some of you who are history buffs, that the only Nazi-occupied European country whose inhabitants successfully resisted the Holocaust, Denmark. Denmark, of all places. So don't bash on the Danes, as some of you are tempted to do, I'm sure, you know, <laughs> those Danes. Um, well, when the Nazis ordered the Danish Jews to wear the yellow star of David to sew it into their clothing, um, the very next day after that order was given, almost every single Dane on the streets uh, wore the stars. Whether they were Gentiles or Jews, they all wore the stars together. Even, and there's a famous picture of this, the Christian uh, king and queen consort of Denmark wore those stars stitched into their clothing as a way of sending a message that we are all one people today. Don't mess with us. Well, after this event, the Nazis actually canceled that order regarding the stars in Denmark. And later, after learning of the Nazis' plan to exterminate the Jews, you know, members of the Danish resistance, including people within the royal family, organized their transportation to Sweden. And because of that, only 120 Danish Jews died during the war. It's because they all wanted to show that they were one people. And that's a small picture of a bigger reality that we have in the New Testament and with this new temple, which is a united humanity marked not with stars, but with the absolving cross of Christ. So that's the old temple of canvas and then concrete and the new temple, which is made of the substance of you and me. Now, let me give um, five implications regarding this new organic temple, our nomadic cathedral. And I will be brief. Do not be much afraid. First, the new temple is communal. Communal. This may sound obvious, but it's not to our ears. It's, uh, you know, individually, um, uh, we are not the temple as Paul is referring to it here. We together, together are the temple. There is a part of the Kenyan liturgy uh, that says this as, as part of the Eucharistic rite. It says, we are because he is. It's very good. We are, we're a collective because of him, right? Oh, well, so, and, you know, Paul writes endlessly about the communal nature of the church. He says, we are one body, though with many parts. We are part of the family of God. And let me speak this to you very directly. You know, life is too hard. You cannot manage on your own. You need a spiritually oriented and rooted support system. Life is too brutal. It hurts us too deeply 
and we don't recover as we ought to without having brothers and sisters by baptism. It's, it's what we need, you know. I know some people think that we survive only depending upon a rugged individualism where you only need yourself. Um, the Bible has a word for that perspective. Um, it's called sin. Um, uh, it is. Uh, like that kind of independence, where is that in Scripture? We are wholly dependent. First on the grace of God that is mediated through the blood led in Christ. And then we are dependent upon others who can reflect that love to us. We don't survive. We don't thrive without that. We are um, part of a community. Uh, you may remember Anne Rice, the authoress of the Vampire Chronicles, uh, converted to Christianity for like eight minutes. Um, she did. She converted from like a humanism or something to Christianity, but then didn't like some of the social positions of the church. And so then she said, I'm just going to be a Christian by myself. I don't need anybody else. And that lasted, well, eight minutes. And now she's like a humanist again. Here's my point. Not whether she is or not. Who knows? But the point is that like we actually don't manage very well on our own. And so whenever you have this streak to be the Gnostic independent hermit, just ask yourself if that is derived from the Bible. I'm doubtful. Okay. So that's what the temple is communal. Point two, the new temple is tangible. Tangible. It's an important point. The Christian spirituality is fiercely materialistic. Uh, God has ordained a temple of flesh. Now, I want you to also notice that the church's tangible assets are not Tiffany windows, much as we like them, or boilers that work, or the ones that are under here that just simply boil, um, or licensed kitchens, or nice pews. Those are all good things, but they're not the church. Um, our temple is made of better materials, your bones, your sinews, your feelings. They are all the Albion oak that keeps this temple um, secure. Uh, our religious center, our shrine, friends, is not Jerusalem, is not Rome, is not D.C. It is a shrine of persons. Anyone who professes the name of Christ is part of this tangible temple. Point three. The new temple is nomadic. It is on the move. Because our temple is not a place or a destination or, a, or searchable via Google Earth, uh, we are not trapped by terrain or geography or language or class. Those things, those, uh, those walls that so often separate people, our movement is inextricably um, nomadic, always nomadic. Uh, and that's why, as constituent members of this new temple, we should always be asking two questions. Who isn't here, and how do we go to them? Not how do we wait till they look us up online, but how do we find a way of sharing a little light, of sharing a little love with them? I think it's an important question. You know, when I was an Episcopalian, like, they didn't know how to do evangelism very well. I'm not saying anybody's really nailed it, but, like, I was in a meeting of, like, Episcopal clergy, and they said, well, I don't know what more we can do. We did paint the doors. Because back then, if you painted your doors red, people would think that, oh, that's an Episcopal church. And evidently, that would be, like, magic. And people would just, like, zombie-like walk through the door. Like, where is water that I may be baptized? Do you know, you know how many times that ever happened? That never happened. It wasn't real. It's what people did instead of evangelism. And it didn't work. And I have the statistics, by the way, to back that up that it didn't work. But here's the point. Like, we're a nomadic movement. We find ways of reaching people. 
That's, we, we are people who have been sent forth. So the new temple is communal. It's tangible. It's nomadic. Point four, the new temple is inclusive. It's for people that are far off and people that are near. You know, It's a good word. Inclusion is a good word. I know it can be co-opted by like psychosis or people in psychosis, but I, I think it's a really good word. Because Jesus was like that, you know? He was always looking for people that didn't fit. He loved people that didn't fit. He loved people with pathetic faith, like rancid ideas and a terrible track record. And if we don't, maybe there's a problem with us. But he did. Uh, and he believed that how people change is that they're loved into change. That you, you can't hate somebody into change. And you, don't, you can't scold them into righteousness. They had to be loved in the midst of their sin in such a way that they would be quickened to realize their need. Yeah. What's inclusive, uh, this is why the Jews and the Gentiles are involved. It's why Paul says that there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Um, and so um, I always find that God is a little more inclusive than we are, uh, at least than many of us are. And... Um, and I'm wondering who you would excise from the kingdom if you could, you know, or this church. Is it the crying kids? Like the kids that are the kids that like say the prayers too loudly or I don't know. They bother you because they throw off your liturgical rhythm. Uh, you know, is it the teenager who's on the iPhone right now when I'm giving this like this really helpful sermon? <laughs> um, is it is it addicts in this congregation that hide their track marks because they don't want you to see their track marks? Uh, is it people who voted for Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Is it overweight people that you think really need to get a grip because you're concerned for their health? Or really underweight people that make you very nervous? Is it, uh, it ex-evangelicals who you know, had a bad experience, who were dreamed up a bad experience of the church, and now they're raging out constantly? and They're halfway out the door right now you know, in their hearts. But who is it? I mean, who would you want to excise? Everybody has, you know, a few people that they could live without. So I was talking to this person recently who, uh, uh, who was in ministry in Jersey, and, uh, and she said, um, yeah, at the church there was, this, uh, there was this woman, and she said she has um, a borderline personality disorder, and she said, I've dealt with borderline personality disorder before, and it's not a big deal, but this particular woman has a particular case of it that makes her email me every day with about two pages of corrections for my life. Like she's been my sternest critic. And I said, wow, how do you deal with that? And she said, well, I sort of love it. I'm like, love it? What? Have you balanced your meds? Like, what's happening? And she said, well, the truth is, Ethan, uh, I needed to learn to love people like her. And how was I ever going to do that unless I was exposed to a person like that? And so it's difficult sometimes. But uh, on the other hand, I'm, I'm growing and I'm learning. I thought that was a beautiful answer. Uh, and so the new temple was inclusive. And lastly, the new temple is secure. The new temple is secure. Uh, you know, it's founded not on me. It's not founded on Anglicanism. It's not founded on, like, some illusion of church infallibility. Instead, it's founded on Jesus Christ. He's the unmovable rock. He's the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The new temple is not just a, a sociological construct. It's not just founded on us or our truth, whatever that means, our experiences, our power, our success, our drive, our accomplishments. No, it's founded and secured upon a Christ who adores the practice of rampant and maniacal forgiveness. 
See, friends, the only way a church can be a community uh, that is honest and gracious, that is safe in the right way and also unsafe in the right way, that is responsible and bold, is to be grounded in the one who steadies us. The health of this new temple is directly connected to how well we are founded upon Jesus Christ. If you want to know why churches start to rot or why things get terrible or gross or cold or dead, it's because of detachment that occurs between the new temple or the constituent parts of the new temple and its foundation of Jesus Christ. The closer we are to Jesus, the closer we are to health. I I liken it to a campfire, you know, how a fire both warms and disinfects. The same is true with Jesus. The closer you are, the warmer you'll be, and the, the more you'll be disinfected. And that's what a church needs to do. We have to realize that we are people who only have legitimacy because we've been founded upon the legitimate and legitimizing man. That's it. But if we're studied there, I mean, anything's possible. So that's the new temple, friends, and you are a part of it. God has given us, you and me together, this unique dignity, a unique dignity that when we are together, we are ever more than the sum of our parts. We are the house of the infinite. We are the thin place. We offer the world a vision of God. And I pray that we would do that responsibly and in a way that's in line with the gospel, Um, that we are the mirrors of the life of heaven that you are the portals of paradise. Something to think about. (laughs) They could not take your